0: For me as a designer, an emotional response to the world and everything that's going on around me, whether that's to me or to others, it's felt and I make my feelings rather than eat them.
1: That's Holly Ryan, one of the coolest people I've probably ever had the pleasure of meeting. And even though we haven't actually met, it was our first time chatting over this recording. And... I have a confession about this episode and my own process. The software that I use is called Squadcast and I was very, very confident in my setup. On the day of recording with Holly, they changed their entire interface, upgraded it, and nothing was where it used to be. Imagine a total makeover. So I logged in, thought that I would be fine, and I wasn't. Something was recorded incorrectly and it's jeopardized the quality of our chat. When you listen to it, you're probably just going to think it sounds fine, like any old Zoom call in an echoey room, but I know that it's not, and it's not even close to the audio quality that I like to put out for you, so I'm really sorry. I was thinking of recording again with Holly, but that's actually not what Process the Podcast is all about. I wanted to be really, really honest about the process, and sometimes things just don't go to plan. You'll hear about Holly's recent experience with that exact thing in this episode with Australian jeweler and owner of her namesake brand. Holly is literally sunshine. She is the kind of person that if I had a sister, I'd want her to be exactly like that. Cool, honest and true to what she believes in. And she's trailblazing for the planet. I'm inspired to do better by our conversation and I hope that you are too. Welcome to Process the Podcast. I'm your host, Arielle Thomas, Motion Director and Founder of production company, Cinema Tom. I can't wait to bring you into the world of my guests, some of Australia's most prolific creatives working in fashion, media, and design as we unpack their unique creative process. Before I dive into this recording with Holly, please share this episode with anyone that you think will love it. We've moved the podcast over to its own Instagram account, which is at Process the Podcast, and I would love for you to leave us a review and give us a follow. Molly, oh, well, yeah, I just told you you're my first guest that I haven't actually met, but yeah. in our banter in like the podcast waiting room, I feel like I already know you, which is
0: heaven. Yeah, we we got pretty deep there. <laughs> but
1: I'm so happy that we did you were so I've never I, I mean I just didn't assume that you'd listen to all the eps which just warms my heart that's so yeah, sweet I
0: really enjoyed them um especially because they're all from completely different walks of life to me as well and different areas of the industry so it's so insightful to learn about those journeys
1: yeah because I don't think really like you'd hear about them anywhere else you know and the difference yeah, you between don't. Your brand and Shanna Bessem's brand is Shanna's come from an absolute – did you listen to Shanna's app? I actually didn't. That's the one I missed. the one that you did? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, he was at Scanlan Theatre for about 20 years working in luxury branding and all of that and then now is has brought this product into the market that's um, probably as um, he speaks about getting literally the best materials that money can buy to put into – um, eyewear pieces and jewellery but your story is so much more on the tools and coming from the sculpting element as well so I'm so excited
0: to chat. Yeah it's industry like it's definitely different ends of the industry but I mean they're all one and the same at the end of the day it's creativity.
1: Absolutely so talk to me about your start so jewellery it seems has been around you forever so was it always your plan to pursue? Because you studied fashion, didn't you?
0: Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't my plan to pursue. Um, My parents studied silversmithing in Mexico in the 80s and um, they actually fell pregnant with me at the time that they were studying over there. So there's like a bit of a family story that runs in my veins. But, of course, like any child, especially in my teenage years, I didn't want to do what my parents did. But I was always surrounded by creativity, and my mum sold her jewelry at the markets. And I basically grew up at the markets, and in you know play groups that my parents would put me in. We'd be potato printing fabrics and making candles, and I always had braids in my hair and was gardening. It was a very hippie upbringing. Let's be honest.
1: <laughs> Sounds amazing.
0: Um, But all of that creativity led me to want to do something and I got my mum to teach me to sew when I was probably 11 or 12, I think. And I started making my own clothes and I got really into writing and I tussled between potentially doing creative writing in the fashion industry, like fashion journalism, or making clothes. And I started entering fashion design competitions on the Sunshine Coast and I won a few of them. And then, yeah, I ended up being in like um, Yen magazine. Do you remember that magazine? I remember. Yeah, when I was a teenager for um, winning this fashion design competition on the Sunshine Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I fell in love with making something with my hands. Like that was the biggest part of um, how my upbringing has informed who I am today was working with my hands and seeing my mum work with her hands and my dad working with his hands and just creating something from nothing. I really fell in love with that process, but um, I studied fashion design. I wanted to make clothing. Actually, funnily enough, I was also really into acting when I was in high school and I was leading all the school musicals and um, I applied to two courses at university. One was acting, one was fashion, and I made a pact that whatever answer came first that was positive, that's assuming both would be positive, I didn't assume that, but whatever it was, if it was positive, the first thing that showed up, that was what I was going to do, and fashion showed up, and it was a yes, and acting showed up the next day, and it was a yes, but I went for fashion. (laughs) While I was studying fashion, there was um, some girls in the year above me, um, namely Kelly Elkin, um, she had a store called well-made clothes recently. And before that she had a sustainable activewear brand, but she was doing things about using more environmental fabrics and organic fabrics and like lowering wastage. And I was really inspired by what she was doing. And I started getting quite upset with making clothes and the amount of wastage that there was and just, you know, the offcuts of fabric, the industry was not like it is today. There wasn't places to send your fabric to be, um, pulled apart and reconstituted into something else. It just, that technology didn't exist at that time. And so I became pretty disheartened, I guess. And anyway, I hadn't I hadn't resolved with what that meant for me yet, but when it came to grad um collection, I actually went over to London and did a internship with a designer called Peter Jensen at the time and was very much inspired by the fashion at the time, like Mark Jacobs, Karen Walker, that magazine from London called Lula. It was all very much like Twee matching little like skirt and jacket sets and um rich luxurious European fabrics and tweed and lace and all of that stuff. So I designed this collection that was very much like sixties Sunday best but mini. <laughs> like sexy Sun <laughs> six sexy sixties <laughs> Sunday best. Nice. That was a, that was a mouthful. <laughs> um and I Did, like, these digital prints in there that were, like, very cutesy of, like, squirrels and acorns and stuff, and I ended up making, in collaboration with my mum, a very simple line of iconographic jewellery that was, like, acorn and squirrel study rings and pendants and bolo ties to match, like, the whole vibe of the collection. And at the grad show, uh, Thea Basileau from Blonde Venus, which was a massive store, very progressive in fashion in Brisbane at the time, sadly gone now, um, picked up wanted to pick up the jewellery, not the clothes. So it kind of happened to me. I didn't choose it necessarily. Um, I was very much at the time like, maybe a little bit offended, but also excited. I was like, no (laughs) one likes my clothes. But at the same time I was getting a buyer straight off the graduate runway show. And it was the coolest, hippest store in Brisbane. And straight after that, like fat stores in Melbourne and Too Choosy in Sydney. And like all these stores just started getting in contact because they loved what Thea was doing at Blonde Venus. And um, my mum was making the jewellery. I didn't know how to make jewellery um and we were living in this cottage that I'm currently living in now at the time I was making all of my clothes out of the shed on the property and I had moved to Sydney and was doing an internship with Sarah Phillips and it was my first time backstage at fashion week and I was like I don't know if I want to do this jewelry thing mum can you just like keep it going for a second. Like obviously I'd organise a website and packaging and all of that because I'd learnt all of it at uni and I knew how to get those things done. But it was very simple. And I remember Thea saying to me at the time, like, what do I call your jewellery? And I was like, oh, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, Just call it my name for now and I'll come up with something later. Typical (laughs) 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 21-year-old. And here we are. Really didn't think about the implications of that one. (laughs) Really didn't think about it at all, but um, anyway, I was doing the internship and it was all very exciting. Um, I really wanted to pursue fashion, but there was this pull like, I mean, there was this opportunity being served up to me on a silver platter to do something that had my name on it from a very young age, and people wanted it when I wasn't even sure I liked it myself, <laughs> to be honest. But then I couldn't reject the notion that it was an opportunity I couldn't throw away so I moved home to the cottage and moved back in with my parents and I learned to make jewelry on this back deck which I'm looking at right now and it's very serendipitous to be back here because <laughs> I've got it to myself now. <laughs> um, so do you live there now solo? Yeah yeah oh, I've got a housemate but um, strangely enough and we'll get to it with what's happened in the last couple of years with COVID and border closures and all of that jazz. But I had to move home to Queensland last year. Maybe I should just tell you the story from the beginning, actually. No, it's too far in the future. It's only what happened (laughs) last year. Let's go back. Sorry. Yeah. So the beginning of the business was me realizing there was an opportunity for me to do something more sustainably because the attraction to jewellery and doing it with my mum, like we were offered, we could write a 5,000-word essay or we could design an accessories collection to complement our graduate collection on the runway. And you were able to just design it and have it produced overseas in China or something if you wanted to, or you could work with a local manufacturer or you could make it yourself if you had the skills to. And so I immediately call up my mum and I'm like, hey, want to collaborate on my graduate collection? Um, And if it was going to be jewellery, it was only ever going to be in the way that she'd always made jewellery, which was using real metals like sterling silver and solid gold and real gemstones and doing things properly handmade from scratch. I'd grown up around that. There was no other way of doing jewellery like No two ways about it. It has to be made properly by hand. That was instilled in me from a very young age and that's not something that I could ever get away from. I remember in those early years um, doing things handmade was not, it was not deemed as like high fashion or I guess respected in the industry. It was very much like, oh, so you sell at markets because it's handmade. Like It was very much like, oh, you must be a hippie, which, I mean, maybe I kind of (laughs) am, but (laughs) it very much wasn't accepted in the industry very much at that time. And I really had to explain to people the beauty of handmade over and over and over and over again in those first days, and everyone was like, I don't understand why you're putting yourself through this. You could just be producing offshore. It's not about making money for me. It's about making things that I love with my hands. So it was very much not about like rushing to the finish line.
1: Mm, Yeah. It's so special that you've stayed so true to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a part of who I am. Yeah. Like it's ingrained in me, my respect for nature. I mean, I live on a property of six acres of rainforest. It's what makes me feel like me being close to the ocean, spending time hiking or bushwalking, diving, surfing, fishing. It's, that's what I love to do. And I love to make things with my hands (laughs) (laughs) using beautiful materials that come from the earth that we should have a lot of respect for.
1: It's so refreshing to hear you put your foot down on
0: it. You know, over the years, um, PR companies like obviously want the best for you. They want the biggest growth possible for you. They want you to make as much money as you can and be seen and heard by as many people as possible. But it's hard when you're a maker because there's only so much that you can make in a day. And so that's been a really interesting conversation that I've had to have many, many times with sales agents and PR agents just to be like, hey, we can't actually promise that. We can't move that fast. We can't work with these massive, you know, international companies and produce everything for free up front and get paid in 60 to 90 days. Like we're handmade to order and we need to be paid for the materials before we can make it. And it's a very different model of business, um, within the fashion industry and a lot of businesses are obviously popping up now that are handmade to order and that's so exciting and I love it. I love to see it. But obviously with that and with the growing um, climate crisis, I have to say it, um, like the growing Mm -hmm. understanding of the climate crisis, I should say, obviously there's a lot more talk in the industry and a lot more people paying attention and revisiting their production methods and revisiting, like what they're putting out there. Like I think there's much more considered design across the board at the moment because it's not just about pushing things out as fast as you can. It's about making sure potentially as you were speaking about um, your other guest earlier, getting the best materials you possibly can, that's still considered design. That's still really thinking through the process and not just rushing it for the sake of it's summer, let's put something out. Like it's all about like slowing it down and making sure that like you really have intention with what you're making because what's the point of putting it out there? Otherwise it's just landfill and that's just hurting the earth.
1: Does holly round jewellery now, do you work on a calendar? Mm -mm. So it's all just kind of as it flows.
0: Yeah, I've kind of been, I've switched to that in maybe the last like three to four years, simply because I really don't believe that jewellery is a seasonal thing. We wear jewellery all year round. And if you're investing in something that is made from exquisite materials, then you want to be able to wear that every day regardless. So it's not about high summer, low summer, (laughs) you know, <laughs> autumn, winter <laughs> it's like, resort, you know, if you're wearing a ring, it's, it's, it's year round. And so I kind of, yeah, I did get a little bit rejective of the industry's rules and regulations, um, because being, um, made to order label anyway means that someone is ordering something from me in January and that's summer, but I've got to make it first. So they're not going to have it for four to six weeks things are cooling down then. It's not, not still high summer. Like it's just, it doesn't make any sense for me. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so yeah, I reject the notion that I have to work seasonally because it doesn't work for the model that my business works on anyway.
1: So take us back to the past graduation and you had Mm -hmm. the business that was your name and you recruited your mama to help make all the jewellery and you started to learn how to make the jewellery. What happened next?
0: Yeah, so um, obviously mum already being a silversmith um, and me collaborating with her on that graduate collection, it made perfect sense to hire her as my first member of the team. <laughs> and um, and she'd, always, she'd worked for other jewellers in the past. She um, had always had love for it and had continued to tinker even though she was working in web design at the time. And it, she had a little bit of resistance to committing to it, but there was so much opportunity coming at us that it was like, let's jump. And um, yeah, so the business wasn't founded on any money. Like I didn't, my parents don't have a lot of money, so I didn't get like an injection of cash to start. We very much had to like just scrape. Like I was working at a cafe to make the money to buy the silver that we could make the jewellery from. And, you know, my mum didn't get paid. I didn't get paid for quite a while. Um, then there was like, you know, from QT some of my old lecturers and teachers had put together a program for internships for the students there. And so they reached out to me and were like, would you take any of the students as interns? And so that was like, basically how I got my first staff was, well, not staff, but like help and support because I couldn't afford anyone. So I was just working. In the first year of the business, I worked full time managing a vintage store in Brisbane called Box Vintage. And I worked nights until two or three in the morning making jewelry to fill the orders at Blonde Venus and fat stores. And it was very, like, it was in a little garage underneath my bedroom in Brisbane, in West End. It was, like, just so not as fancy as it looked in the store. Like, I almost couldn't believe it when I walked in a store and saw my jewelry. I was like, oh my goodness. Or if I see <laughs> someone wearing it, oh, like the, just the the shock and the joy, like I made that with my hands and they're wearing it. Like it was very grassroots to start with. Eventually getting a few more stockists, I ended up going and studying at TAFE um, just a Cert three in small business management so that I understood exactly like what was required to do everything legally. And then I took some of my first staff on who were jewellery students um, from Brisbane, and one of them worked for me for eight years and has just launched her own, oh, it must have been nine actually, and just launched her own label like a year and a half, two years ago, and um, I'm so proud of her. She's amazing. But, like, there's so many, like, another girl has worked for me since then, and still works for me, but she's got, I've set her up with her own little home set up because she's got two young ones. So she just makes like, does peacemaking for me, like makes piece by piece as she can with the kids. So it's very much like a family starting with me and my mom. And like my dad has worked for me a little bit and so has my brother.
1: Are they all, are they? have they both joined you in the jewelry making space or helping you in other elements of the business?
0: both in lots of different areas, wherever it was needed. (laughs) Um, My brother was even my accounts manager for a little while. (laughs) Like, you know, that's what small business is. It takes a village. Like it takes everyone coming together to support you. And I couldn't have done it. And I couldn't be where I am today without my family and friends that have stepped on and worked for me in little stints like, Oh yeah, I need a part-time job. I'll come and learn how to make jewelry for a little while. And I would teach them and, They had, they were studying or like have careers in completely different areas now.
1: (laughs) So how, how has it changed from the early days when you may have had like an intern from QT to now working with a team? Is it, it sounds like it's very hands-on obviously work, like with people making the jewelry, um, and that's not necessarily, as we've said, scalable to offshore or you can't necessarily cut costs with your makers because Australia's laws are so strong and thank God that they are in the labour market. But how has it changed with you managing your team?
0: Absolutely. And that's also a big reason why I never took things offshore is because I've always believed in Australian made and locally made. When I was a teenager, I had an idea that I wanted a fashion store called Locals Only and it was only going to (laughs) have local brands in it. Um, and now that's actually what I'm doing. So that's hilarious. Like I wanted to have it in Noosa when I was younger and now I'm about to open a store in Nusa. Are you? Which is all just local brands. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot that's happened in the last couple of years, but I would say not that much has actually changed about the brand and about how we do things. We always, like my mum had learned in Mexico about recycling your scrap metal. So That was, sorry, I should jump back and say, like, you know, that was the reason I fell in love with jewelry making and decided to jump and go with it. Was because with metal, when you cut a pattern out of a sheet of metal, you can still reuse all of the rest of that. You can just melt it down and reconstitute it into whether it's sheet metal or wire or balls of metal, like, depending on what you need it for, for each individual job. But there's this circularity that I just absolutely fell in love with. Like, and you can actually be accountable for every part of that metal. And so like at the end of every job that we're doing, and even within each job that I'm doing, I'm cleaning down with a little mini um, dustpan and brush, all of my metal scraps into different jars. Like if I've been working with yellow gold, it goes in this one. If it's silver, it goes in this one, et cetera. Um, And that all, like, once we fill a jar, we then send it away to be um, uh, reconstituted, basically. And we can have it made into whatever we want, really. And we work only buying recycled metals and then recycling our own metals as well. And that's all in Australia.
1: When we were offline, we were chatting about how friendships in the industry and like-minded, especially women in the industry, how they kind of help us on our way. Got to sound like Alison Rice saying that, don't I?
0: <laughs> help us on our way. <laughs> oh, that's a good thing. Like, she's wonderful. <laughs> I spent too
1: much time with her in my brain.
0: Um,
1: who <laughs> has, from the early days right up until now, who has helped you on your way?
0: Well, definitely, as I mentioned, Billy Iverson was a big help in the beginning, but I think someone that is very obvious to anyone that follows either of our brands would have to be one of my best mates, Laura May, um who is the designer and co-owner with her sister of Nagnata. And, um, you know, we were friends when she first started her label and it was that understanding of friendship and support about small business was like, of course I was going to use Nagnata in all of my campaigns. Of course she was going to use Holly Ryan jewelry in all of her campaigns. And we've never stopped. And it's been like, I think she's been in business for six years now. Oh gosh. I hope I got that right. (laughs) Um, maybe seven. Um, and we just did the, um, presentation off schedule for fashion week, like maybe six weeks ago. And I collaborated with Laura. She came up to the cottage and stayed with me and I hand-strung pearls on her body and workshopped everything with her um, here one afternoon and then, yeah, hand-strung all of these different sculptural draped pearls all over the bodies of every model in the show and it was so fun to finally collaborate with my best mate and a few of those pieces will be released with the opening of the store as well.
1: When you collaborate on a, like a live show like that and it's of it's collaborating off of the foundation is their event. How do you go creating with them and for them?
0: For this particular project, Ilkin Kurt was the stylist. So Laura and Ilkin were collaborating with a story behind what this show would look like, but that was deeply tied to um, Indigenous history and climate change and the current situation that we find ourselves in and how Nagnada as a brand could become more responsible socially and environmentally in line and aligned with Indigenous ways of dealing with these issues. And so there was this whole conversation that was going on prior to even thinking about what that show would look like. And Laura knew she wanted to work with me on it, but she had to storyboard all of those concepts and ideas together with Ilkin first, and then they both came to me with references of the kind of th- things that they thought would work. But, of course, being a creative myself, it's not a collaboration unless I had input. And so then I had a lot of ideas and we just went back and forth and that's why we ended up as well having to workshop on Laura's body. But there was, you know, a WhatsApp conversation going on between Laura and Ilkin, myself, and Laura's brand manager, Joel, throwing all of the ideas around, all trying them on ourselves, selfies. Like it was, you know, just late night conversations. And the fact that we're all friends and know each other and have worked together previously made it very easy to just have that honest conversation about this isn't working. Let's change this. And you don't. Take anything personally in that sphere, you just like keep working to make sure it all flows. And like Ilkin and I were still hand sewing things together and like readjusting jewels right up until those models went on the catwalk. We were backstage going, <laughs> and so you know, it's all like the whole thing is a collaboration backstage until it finishes. Yeah, I've
1: been backstage at Fashion Week before, <laughs> it is a mess. <laughs>
0: It's full on, but it's so much fun and it's so exciting. And there's this beautiful photo that um, Yasmin Satea took of when Laura and Hannah walked back off stage. Laura just like ran into my arms and we both started crying and Yaz got a photo of it and it's so cool (laughs) because it just expressed like all of the emotions that we were feeling and all the work that had gone into it and like Laura worked so hard, Hannah and Laura and Joel and it'll get everyone, the whole entire team worked so hard on that presentation and it was spectacular and I'm just so grateful that I was a part of it.
1: Yeah, wow. I saw that come up. Obviously the first touch point was Instagram, but then I looked at it much mm, mm. closer. Do you have you done stuff within obviously I think being Australian and being attached to nature the way that you are, you likely have, but have you done initiatives with indigenous um, with the indigenous through line in mind?
0: I haven't specifically um, good friends of my family are Aboriginal. And so the model for my very first campaign for Lush Life was my Aboriginal friend, Sinead Carey. Oh, she's now Sinead Wright. Um, and I always spoke with Sinead and her mum, Jules, about everything that I was doing sort of along the journey and just getting tips and pointers here and there. Like when I had to first give an address an acknowledgement of country, I called Jules and was like, how do I say this the right way for this area? And like, you know, every time I'm in a new area, I call Jules and I'm like, am I pronouncing this correctly? Is this the right way to say this? And, you know, so only very, very minimally, but I now um, have had a conversation with Eleanor Bancroft, who, uh, who Laura is working with, with Nagnata, as as she's an Indigenous sustainability consultant. And so I am hoping if she has the time, she'll be able to come on board for this new collection, but if not, it'll be the next one.
1: I'm so grateful that there are leaders in that space able to hold the hand of Australian designers and make sure that there's no dumb questions, but also just encourage, because to be honest, it is a scary space, Because you just don't want to, you want to absolutely do the right thing.
0: Exactly. You don't want to upset anyone. And as someone who cares about the environment as much as I do, I think it goes hand in hand with caring about the Indigenous history of this country. And they know a lot better about how to take care of it than we do. We should be listening.
1: Very much so. We just touched previously a moment ago, we were touching on how you'll only now work with recycled materials. What is on offer in the Australian market in terms of if it's not, I mean, in fashion, if we're talking about textiles, if it's not recycled, then I guess it's new. So what's on offer in the in the material space for jewellers in Australia?
0: There's heaps of different avenues. Um there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of the companies are always just producing new materials. That's the standard. Um, but there was a company called um, A&E Metals, which is now dissolved and owned by a bigger company that only worked by producing recycled metals. So that was all they were selling. So I had a really good relationship with them for years and worked with them directly for a long time. but. It's now become a lot more difficult, which is over the years, though, we had brought more and more of that recycling in-house to the point where we weren't even having to purchase much metal. Um. But now a lot of the companies that were only producing new metals are now doing recycled metals as well and there's a lot of smaller companies that have come up and doing recycled metals just because the conversation of sustainability and responsible production has become a much bigger conversation which is fantastic and we want that because you're seeing a lot more handmade jewellery labels come up now which is exciting
1: yeah how do you see the jewellery industry in Australia like
0: I don't necessarily know
1: how we're going
0: um Look, there are still people doing terrible things. There always will be. But I think that there is a lot of amazing new brands and even brands that were in existence before this conversation has become so loud are changing their production methods, are listening more to their consumers because consumers want transparency now. They've been educated and so, you know, Consumers are asking me questions all the time. Luckily I can answer them, but like a lot of people can't. And that's the difference. And, you know, that's greenwashing, of course. Like there's a lot of brands that will say made in Australia, but it could just be assembled in Australia. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily made in Australia. It's just been assembled and put in a box. It's not from scratch using Australian materials And interestingly, there is going to be a new trademark about um, Australian made fashion coming soon, which is very exciting that I'll be a part of that too. I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about it too much yet.
1: (laughs) When will that come out?
0: I think the plan um, is a few months from now, but they're still just in the sort of organisational background stages of things. Yeah. Like a lot of, every brand has to apply to get it. I was just very luckily reached out to because I already ticked all the boxes. So yay, finally, finally, it's only taken 12 years (laughs) to have an accreditation for being handmade and knowing what that means. Cause like that's half the battle is just educating consumers on what it means to actually be handmade because handmade is just a term that people slap on everything. And it's, kind of lost its meaning. Obviously everything is being handmade somewhere, but whether or not it's being handmade in Australia using, you know, the most responsible production methods you can and the most ethical business as well. So
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: I just always felt passionately about this. And I started the business saying, you know, we're only going to use recycled metals. We're going to reuse all of our scrap metals. We're going to make everything by hand. Every step of the process is going to be done in-house. That's something that was instilled in me by my mother and my father. And it's something that just felt right to me and that there was literally no other choice for me. That was only that way of doing things. I wouldn't I didn't even consider any other option. Like I said, people were constantly coming to me and going, take it offshore and companies constantly. I still get an email every day from India, you know, (laughs) offering their services to produce my jewellery. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm doing it myself. (laughs) Wow. But the difference between having interns back then and now is obviously the brand has grown with me and my skills have developed over time as well. So back in the days of um, graduate collection, my first actual collection I put out was called Lush Life, (laughs) 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 embarrassing, and it was all iconography based, sunny coast inspired and a little bit Mexican as well and threw some Greek in there for why why not? There was like <laughs> cactuses and palm trees and bananas and suns and an evil eye and a moon and a heart, I think it was. And they were like study rings and um pendants and rings, like super, super simple. It was kind of at around the same time that Karen Walker had brought out that really simplistic iconography range, and I guess this was me seeing the gap in the market for something that was locally made and locally inspired because there wasn't really anything like that in the jewellery market at that time that was sold in fashion boutiques. It was either high street jewellers or, like, really, really editorial-style jewellery, like costume jewellery, and there wasn't anything in between that. And I was like, ooh, I like the look of you. (laughs) And my second collection was all architecture based and was all very sculptural and very like dramatic because I'd learned some more skills and I knew how to use them and I was excited to.
1: Yeah. So all your collections now have really strong nouns like fluidity, reverence, intimacy. Where do they come from?
0: Everything in the brand is just a reflection of what's going on in my life. It's like whether it's something deeply personal or whether it's something slightly more superficial, it's just experience and timing and everything has an emotion behind it. Like the Reverence collection from last year came from a place of gender inequality. So the whole collection is genderless and it was all just about timeless design that could be worn by anyone. Um, so that's the concept behind that one. There was um, the Fem collection back in 2017. Was about the same thing, really. <laughs> it was about um, that's when female rights were really getting talked about a lot. Um, the marches started happening, and so I did this collection of um, asymmetric lips and asymmetric boobs, and everything was all about like pushing those boundaries and expectations of what beauty should mean for women in our industry and especially when you work in the fashion industry and it slaps you in the face every day. It was me sort of rejecting that a bit and having wanting to have a conversation about what that means in the industry through a collection of very sculptural and definitely more surreal, not realistic depictions of female bodies.
1: How are you channeling those emotions into jewelry, because obviously it all starts with you in your design process. How do you find the buildup of those emotions are then channeled through you, through your hands into crafting a certain piece? Do you draw first? Do you journal the fuck out of
0: it? Like, how are you? (laughs) I don't. And my uni lecturers hate me for it. Um, I don't like really mood boarding. I don't really draw. I literally pick up the tools and start carving. And when I say carving, it's usually like my preferred method of jewelry making is to carve wax shapes. Um, obviously I make all types of jewelry and I enjoy all of it, but that's probably the most um, intuitive jewelry making for me is when you just take a block of wax and carve it into a shape that is obviously apparent of those emotions inside me. So I don't necessarily plan a design. Sometimes it is literally just what ends up in my hands when I'm happy with the finished product.
1: And then how many do you think that you do rogue versus what goes into actually forming a collection that you then pass on to your team?
0: Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> um, I was actually because I'm <laughs> I'm trying to design my next collection right now and what that means for me at this stage after 12 years of business is revisiting the archives of the things that I didn't approve or didn't put through into production in the past and going, okay, was there something there? Is that idea still relevant to me? Do I feel emotionally connected to it? And if not, then it goes in the scrap pile to be melted down. But I have this box of these designs and even a lot of it's wax, some of it's metal, some of them are fully finished pieces that I must have even shown at fashion week, but then that sample never went into production. So they're in there. And I was looking through it today and I was like, mm, let's bring 2000 and what was it? 14 back. <laughs> like, And that actually feels relevant to me again. And sometimes I design from like reusing old ideas and then bringing them back together. And you can kind of see that through my collections. There is some repeated motifs or shapes. And that's because I like to design from what I have in the studio, from the materials that I have on hand first. And then if I get to a point of the design where I'm like, this really needs this stone and we don't have it here, then I'll order it but I try to design from whatever metal wire bits and pieces we have around gemstones left over from old collections, whatever it is. I like to go there first. And so, yeah, it's probably, I'd say a ratio Oh, some designs are just perfect first go, but sometimes if I'm too fixated on how I've visualized it to be, I'll make maybe three. And sometimes I end up going back to the first one and going, oh, the original was the best anyway. That's always the way, isn't it? Because it's intuition, (laughs) you know, like it's intuitively creating. So you're not, that's like meditation, you know, you're not supposed to be in control. Mm.
1: Is there a version of you that is the most successful at the carving table? Like I know I'm the best editor or shot list creator or doing my particular job when I've had a coffee and I'm well-rested. And I've moved my body that morning. Do you find yourself in like an optimal space to to create with your hands?
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm in absolute rhythm with getting up with the sun every morning, and taking my dog for a walk up the mountain that I live on. It's actually a dog friendly um, national park, which is unheard of. <laughs> I'm very great for that. Or going for a swim or taking him to the beach in the morning. Like if I start my day in nature, I am set. I'm ready to go. But if it's really rainy and horrible, I get a bit thrown off. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll still, you know, I'll put on the raincoat every now and then. But it definitely does affect my flow. Like if I haven't had that visit to nature or connection to nature in the morning, it affects my ability to create new designs doesn't necessarily affect me just to make things. But if I'm designing something new, then I think it's really important for me to have that like experience before doing that.
1: How does your time get divided up between designing something new versus you being somebody on the tools that's creating for an order that's come in?
0: I wish there was a structure to that. <laughs> um, there isn't because it's just like jobs land on my desk and i um, Basically, the way that we do it is like orders come through the online store, orders come through emails. Orders come through boutiques and they all go into a production schedule and each jeweler, depending on their skills and the jobs that they like, and sometimes we swap it around, has a colour code and all of those jobs get slotted into that colour code and it gets emailed to us every morning. So, like, you've got new things highlighted for, like, you specifically to do that day. And, like, it might be highlighted, like, this customer needs it by the 14th for their sister's birthday or this is for a day that this guy has booked a holiday to propose to his wife. So we need that engagement ring by then. And so that'll like sort of move things around a little bit. Um, And we try as hard as we can to meet everyone's demands for deadlines, but obviously it's not always possible. And at the moment with, you know, supply chain delays across every industry, it's very difficult to make those promises and we've had to extend our um, like making times on our website from two to three weeks and it was three to four weeks. Now it's four to six weeks and on some things it's eight weeks because it's just impossible to do it any faster and get the materials responsibly and ethically faster.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Are you, when you're designing, do you, obviously when you're, I have this as a filmmaker, when you're, The head honcho, if you will, (laughs) and you have all these other creatives around you that are also craftsmen of what they do. Do you bring in their imagination and their creativity into your own process? Do you ever handball it and say, hey, can you take a look at this? What do you think this should be like?
0: Well, I mean, like... One of my head jewelers, his name's Tim, he's um, Dutch, he's from Holland. He's a fully trained goldsmith and studied goldsmithing, whereas I have not. I'm taught by my mother, my mother and then self-taught and then I've done a couple of little courses here and there and diamond setting and wax carving and whatever. Um, but I'm nowhere near as good as him, so I'm so grateful to have him. So with every idea I have, and the same with Lena, the girl I said had worked for me for eight or nine years before starting her own label. I regarded her as being a better jeweller than me as well. And I would always, I always ask both of them for advice. Like, what do you think about this, about the structural integrity of this design and like how this works and how this is going to sit and do you think this is going to flow? I'm constantly bouncing off the other jewellers in the workplace and just be like, do you think this functions as a good timeless design or is it just editorial and am I being silly? Am I getting too excited? Um, Because I have a lot of ideas and actually simplifying that into a collection is probably the hardest part for me. Yeah, (laughs) Because I just want to do everything. Um, But I guess my team are grounding for me in the way that it's like, Come on, hold! That's not going to work, darling. They slink off to the corner. I always try and push anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "You just don't understand. It's going to be great." Um, but yeah, I lean on them for. Sorry, I lean on them for the support in how to make something a lot of the time, um, or make it better, or make production more s- seamless because that's a huge part of the business as well as like how can we keep our costs as low as possible on production on this item so that we're not outpricing ourselves in the market and so that someone like me can afford my jewelry because there's pieces of my jewelry that I can't afford (laughs) you know like I can't afford a ten thousand dollar diamond on my hand but that's you know what I sell to some of my clients you know and it's I always have felt really passionate about making sure that it was still accessible to anyone. And so there are pieces on my website that are $50 and then there's things that are made to order that might end up being, you know, 10 to 20 grand. So there's a massive audience that we're reaching and that's really important to me too.
1: Mm. Are you involved in that custom order, say the engagement ring? kind of a thing? Is it? Is there somebody in within the business that does that because that's their expertise and you delegate that to them? Or do you have every touch point of pretty much client and then like for custom,
0: how does that so work? So I have a brand manager who is an absolute gun and she doesn't come from a jewellery background. She comes from a fashion background. She'd work for matches and um, basic and a bunch of other labels but she's learned about jewellery, about the carrots of metal and about gemstones and done her research to be ideal in this role where she basically has the very first conversation with a client and then when it becomes a design conversation, that's when I step in. So it depends. Like If someone is just ordering one of my designs and only wants it customised with different coloured gemstones, that's a conversation Rochelle can have. But if it's something where they, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of my recycling initiative.
1: Yeah, I am personally, but we'll definitely talk about it. Yeah,
0: so it's basically where, yeah, people can bring back potentially, I mean it started with if you've lost one pair of your earrings, you can bring that back to me and I'll make you the other pair and I'll repolish them and replate them and all of that and that's like a service. And then I realized there were some people who weren't actually maybe that attached to those earrings anymore, but they've still got this expensive piece of material sitting on their shelf going unused that could end up in landfill, but it's very precious materials and it should be recycled and made into something new. And that just got me to thinking, well, There's heaps of people with heirloom jewellery just sitting on shelves or in drawers that they're never going to wear because they're not that attracted to it. And that's when I designed the whole concept of having a recycling initiative where someone could bring me old jewellery of mine or jewellery from whether it's heirloom jewellery or jewellery from other labels, as long as it's high quality metal, as long as it's either sterling silver or solid gold, then I can melt that down and make it into something new for you. And like there's all the details on my website on exactly how that works. And basically a good example is if you have, say, my Picasso necklace or a Zodiac necklace or one of my key core designs that I'm never going to cancel, so it's still for sale on the website, if you send that back to me now and I'm still selling it, you're basically going to get a gift voucher for my website with only a 25% deduction of the retail price to spend on my website on something else because all I need to do is clean it obviously do the full hygienic clean on it repolish it replate it or maybe give it a new chain depending on what it is there's obviously like a few rules here and there if you've broken the chain or if it's snapped or if you've stepped on it and squished or you won't get as much you'll just get like the metal weight as a um, gift voucher but Obviously, if I think there's more value to something, I want you to have that. Like I want you to be wearing something that you want to wear every day. I don't want you to see my jewellery as something that should sit on the shelf. If it's sitting on the shelf and you're not wearing it, then my goodness, just send it back to me. I'll melt it down and I'll make it into something new that you love.
1: It's so unique that you think like that.
0: <laughs> it is. I just think like... It makes sense to me.
1: That's just what makes sense to me. I know. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I feel like it would make sense to everybody, but you'd be surprised that you're one of the only people doing it.
0: Once they learn about it. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's hard. Like, that's why I said yes to today, because the only other podcast I've done was with uh, Alison Rice. Mm. And to have a real conversation about actually what happens behind the scenes and know that it's not all smoke and mirrors was why I was excited to talk to you.
1: Yeah. It's so cool. I love it. Um, do you find yourself doing like the classic heirloom pieces with like stones that have become the heirloom and then people get them reshaped into bands and different pieces?
0: Yeah, so for example, a girl gave me maybe six pieces of heirloom jewelry, and there was rubies and sapphires and diamonds in there, and um, I ended up making a custom heavy wabi sabi ring for her that included like some marquee, which is like the eye shape stone in the wabi-sabi, which isn't traditionally what I do online, including some of her other stones. So she, like, wanted one of my designs but customised to use the stone she'd inherited. And obviously I also made the ring out of the gold melted down from her heirloom jewellery as well. So it was the ring was made of gold and rubies and diamonds and sapphires from her both sides of the family, grandmothers, that included a difference to her that, No one else would have. I love that. And you know, there's so much sentiment imbued in jewelry. It's why I love being a jeweler. You get to be a part of everyone's romance stories. Yeah! Wow, that's so nice. It's so cute. I always know when people are getting engaged before they are. Before they do, I mean. (laughs) That's so nice. It's fun.
1: So when you're when you are setting those collections and they're what you're going through and what you're feeling and holding emotionally and then you're channeling them through the pieces that eventually become a collection how do you pass that then onto the team to for them to feel it do they have much to do with that process of you saying, hey, guys, this is a fluidity piece, do you kind of G them up, if you will, for that movement and the feeling and why you're doing what you're doing or are you like, hey, guys, this is none of your business, it just happened to me and I (laughs) now and this is what's up.
0: No, anyone that knows me knows like I wear my heart on my sleeve, I'm very passionate about what I do, I'm always talking about the things that I'm passionate about. It's just an ongoing conversation in the studio all day long of like, you know, different movements that are happening in the world that I'm excited to be a part of and different collaborations that are happening with different friends, brands. And this is why I'm doing it is because they're handmade too. And that feels aligned with me. And even, you know, today, um, a pretty big brand reached out and wants to stock my jewelry in all their boutiques. And I immediately went to their website to look at what their like sustainability values are. Because I'm like, I don't really want my jewellery stocked in a store that doesn't share the same values as me and doesn't understand what I'm about because they can't really sell the jewellery if they're doing something from a very different perspective. Or the communication doesn't happen. Like I've found, um, you know, my jewellery was sold in Maya for years and that was just impossible because the turnover of staff there means that no one's really passionate about the brands that are there and there's no communication and sterling silver and real gold will tarnish and someone needs to supply them with the polishing cloth that we supply. So that, like, supply chain thing, it's just nightmare for me. Handmade jewellery needs to be understood. So that communication is necessary and it just makes it really difficult. So if I am reached out to by a brand that I think, yeah, doesn't care about that stuff, then I will politely decline most of the time.
1: Mm. How do you think that the state of the world is going to affect your, particularly your making? Like how are you feeling? Like not necessarily supply chain conversation. Let's talk about the emotion first. Are you finding yourself this week in particular carving and making and feeling?
0: It definitely makes me very depressed seeing things that are going on in the world environmentally. And like last year, all of the supply chain issues that affected me were mostly with chains and findings, so things like a parrot clasp or a jump ring. We make a lot of our own jump rings, but parrot clasps we buy. They've got a, like, spring mechanism in them and um, we don't have the machinery for that in-house, so that sort of thing we have to buy. You couldn't get them. They're sold out everywhere, earring backs like butterfly backs. Couldn't get them. <laughs> like It was Really, really tricky and chains was the biggest one and that um, led me to bringing production to my design and I designed a whole range of my own chains and that was like the collection last year. So it was directly in response to I couldn't find the materials so I had to make them and that made everything a lot slower and a lot harder and a lot more expensive. That's, as they say, how you pivot, right?
1: (laughs) No one can say that word without me <laughs>
0: thinking of that meme with Ross from friends. It. <laughs> I hate saying it so much. I know, but it's gotta be done. Someone says it to me, I cringe too. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that is the beauty of the business model that I have because it's always been made to order. So no matter what happens with our sales, like it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. People are still getting married People still love the sentiment of jewellery and people have a lot of medals lying around a lot of the time that even if they don't have money to buy something new, like say someone's getting engaged, they don't have any money to buy a ring, call up mum, call up the aunties, what heirloom jewellery do you have that I could potentially put towards getting a jeweller to make something out of, you know, and it's making that opportunity more available to, you know, lower socioeconomic It's necessary. Are
1: you finding at the moment with what is, it's probably too soon to tell. And I think that the creativity, especially among women creators, after what we've seen with Roe vs Wade in the past, last week especially, but then I guess the past 18 months of women's rights and now the gun violence and shooting, especially when it's children, because it really stings our maternal instincts, let alone all. Yeah,
0: it's like the two in one. It's just gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, like I've definitely cried over it a lot recently. It hits you so hard, so deep, and it affects everyone that you care about.
1: Yeah, and so the conversations that you must be having in the studio, do you think that there will be a collection that is refined out of this heaviness? Definitely.
0: Definitely. I actually picked out a few of the femme pieces from that 2017 collection I was talking about earlier today going, oh, I feel like I want to bring that back because that's the emotion that I had then. And it's the same message. So it wouldn't be such a bad thing to bring an archive piece back to send that message. And we were having that conversation in the studio today. So yeah, it's definitely for me as a designer, an emotional response to the world and everything that's going on around me, whether that's, To me or to others, it's felt and I make my feelings rather than eat them.
1: (laughs) Great for the waistline, though. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Terrible for the mental health.
0: (laughs) Yeah, terrible for the mental health. and Like that's something like I've been talking to my therapist about recently is my inability due to having made my label my name at such a young age an early age and not knowing what that would mean for me later on, I find it now very difficult to separate myself from the business. Like it's all just one in the same. It has its benefits though sometimes. Oh, definitely. Because I care so deeply about every part of it. And if I didn't, and I wasn't so passionate about it, then it definitely wouldn't be where it is today because You know, I've never had any investors or anything like that. So it's had to grow organically and that can only happen when there's passion and determination and motivation and hard work. (laughs) All of the things. So, Hal, you mentioned when
1: we were offline um, several changes that happened in COVID. Talk to me about those.
0: Yeah, so beginning of 2020 I signed my first, like, big exciting commercial lease on a two-storey terrace in Surrey Hills on Elizabeth Street. And it was very hugely important to me. I was marking 10 years of the business in 2020, so I was going to be able to open retail. But then COVID happened and we were in the middle of the fit-out. And so the design of the space changed to reflect what was going on in the world and we ended up opening as a showroom by appointment, which was fantastic and amazing But then as we got towards the end of 2020, it was like, all right, well, things seem to be getting better. Let's plan for opening retail again. So then we did like a new fit out and as we were in the middle of that fit out, we discovered toxic black mold was riddled through the walls and the floors of the building. And I had to evacuate my team. Immediately, and I had to fly to Queensland to work from a studio that I had up here that was still being run by my mum and had my Sunny Coast team working at it. So I had two studios and production teams in both Sydney and Sunshine Coast. And two weeks after I got back thinking, you know, this mould remediation will be sorted, we'll be back in the building in a few months, we'll be opening for retail as planned. Boom, COVID came back in a big way and the borders closed, and I got stuck in Queensland. And I couldn't get back to my business for nine months. So it was just closed. Um, and I lost all of the money for the fit out. And it was all very sad and depressing. Had to let go of a lot of my team. Basically, felt like I was starting over again from the beginning in the last year. So that question about like, how are things different from the beginning to now? I was like, Hmm, not really that different. I, um, I really had to take a good hit to my ego last year because losing my team and losing the space and going back to this original studio, which is in a flat underneath my mom's house was very confronting. Um, I had to go back to doing, you know, a lot of jobs that I just hadn't done in years. And that was very humbling and it was good. And I reconnected with making jewelry in a different way to how I had been doing it for years, which is like, I was mostly just doing bespoke designs, like engagement rings and stuff like that. And then the team would be producing things that were sold on my website and I would obviously assist where I could, but. I was more just focused on bespoke. And this has seen me go back to making, you know, the simplest of things until two in the morning again, (laughs) like it's just been an absolute flooring, I guess. Like the rug was pulled out from underneath me and it was a shock, but thankfully because of the nature of my business. It was never going to dissolve. It just needed to get small so that we can grow again. And now I'm on that upturn again. So the sad days are over. No one knew about it. And there was no need for them to either, you know, but it was like behind the scenes I was scrambling just to make sure that we could fulfill orders. Working weekends. I'm still working weekends a lot at the moment just to make sure everything comes together because I'm about to open a new space, which is retail and workshop combined. And that means I need a bigger team. So I've been hiring and training and well, it's like, we're just like kind of getting back to maybe close to where we were a couple of years ago, but we definitely took a big hit and it's been a big lesson.
1: My chat with Holly was cut short here. We chatted about loads, but the highlight that I need to tell you about is her latest project. It's a store and a studio in the Noosa Industrial Estate, and it opens up in a few weeks. It's collaborative, and that's just the word for it. And it's exactly like her teenage dream of having a boutique called Locals Only. It's pretty much coming true, and she's doing it her way with salvaged materials and basically all of her friends. We touched on what kind of lessons the past two years Holly's learned and she's found that she's going to trust the universe a little bit more. And when she's gone with the flow recently, the universe has in turn treated her kindly. We had a laugh about things, we agreed to have a wine ASAP and then that Holly was going to spend the rest of the afternoon carving for her new collection. I hope that you loved this episode. And if you're a Noosa, head to Holly Ryan and check out the offerings from her friends, collaborators, and Holly herself. We'll see you next Sunday.